Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Old man winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> Heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Welcome to Rico Bronia. Evan Roberts, I still sort of have COVID, so this is a COVID edition of Rico Bronia. So I was locked in my bedroom for the last three days, and all I did, all I did was watch New York Mets baseball, and a lot of it. So when they play a doubleheader on Saturday, and it's two long games that go extra innings, I think I benefited the most, because what the hell else was I going to do stuck in isolation in my bedroom? So selfishly, I was very happy that they rained the game out Friday because for those that have dealt with this whole COVID thing, you probably dealt with what I did, which is for the first two days, you feel like crap. For the first two days, you feel very, very sick. And then by day three, you're like, oh, that was it. I feel better, except I can't leave my room. So Friday, in the midst of that rain out, I was sick as a dog. In fact, I'll explain how sick I was. If they played that game, you ready for this, Hoff? This is unbelievable. If they played that game, I was not going to score it. That's how you know how effed up I was on Friday. That's like a game changer. When's the last time you didn't score a game? Well, no. There are games I don't score, but usually it's life. It's we're doing a radio show or there's some kind of plans. But the last time I didn't score a game because of health was probably 2013. I remember that. What was that series they played against the Chicago White Sox where Matt Harvey dominated? It was uh, 2013. So they played a game against the White Sox, and I was so freaking sick. I had walking pneumonia. That's what I was diagnosed with, even though Craig will tell me there's no such thing as walking pneumonia. And I was so sick, I watched the game like laying upside down on my couch. 
So it's been a while, Hoff. Usually, I'm scoring the game if I want to score the game. There isn't a hell thing that's going to knock me out. But it was that bad Friday. But Saturday, oh my God, I woke up. I smelled the fresh air because I have windows open. And I said, give me baseball. Give me two freaking games of baseball. And obviously, we'll get into those games. The Mets were very, 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 very fortunate to win those games. And look, overall, they come out of this Atlanta series. And good job by you, Pete. Pete did an excellent job with the Rico Bronia after that big series win against Atlanta. Stepped up. He was clutch. He was Jeff McNeil with two outs and runners in scoring position. Obviously... I was pumped after that series. I think we all were. I think most of us were stunned that they actually won that series against Atlanta. But I did look at this four-game set against Chicago and wonder. Nah, I wasn't worried. I just wondered, how are they going to respond against a crappy baseball team after an emotional series win against Atlanta, knowing the All-Star game is about to hit? And I certainly wasn't the only one. Gary Cohn mentioned it a lot during the broadcast that this, this whole series kind of had the makings of a letdown series. And before we kind of lick our wounds over losing the fourth game of this series and really giving one game away, they won three out of four. All right, so the big picture here is the Mets did not overall face any kind of letdown from beating Atlanta two out of three. They went to Chicago. They beat a crappy team three out of four. It's very difficult to sweep series. And I think overall we should be very happy that this team was able to take care of business. They didn't lose ground to Atlanta, who did the same thing against Washington, where they won the first few games and then lost the Sunday game. I think the frustrating thing, and we'll get into it, is how they lost the Sunday game. But overall, the Mets responded. There was no letdown in terms of wins and losses. And I think what was really important, because obviously they didn't hit this weekend. We know that. And they were fortunate to win two out of three over the weekend. But what was really important is what they did on Thursday night. They came out on Thursday night, fresh off of winning that series against Atlanta, and they beat the crap out of, you know, it's actually a decent pitcher in Keegan Thompson and the Cub bullpen. I know that that was very, very important. Right out of the gate, Francisco Lindor's ripping that RBI double. Right out of the gate, they're putting up three runs in the second inning. And so game one of this series was kind of like a tone setter, was a, all right, nice series win against Atlanta. That's great. We're all pumped up. But we're going to back it up by beating a crappy team, especially a team that came in on a six-game losing streak. So, number one, they jumped all over Keegan Thompson. Francisco Lindor, who was so big in that Atlanta series, picks up right where he left, so right where he left off. Carlos Carrasco, we've talked about it. We're either getting a really good cookie Carrasco or we're getting a crappy cookie Carrasco. We got a really good Carlos Carrasco. And he had to battle early. Like, that second inning... Right after the Mets put up those runs, he puts the first two guys on base. But we saw a trend throughout this weekend against Chicago. Most times, when the Mets allowed Chicago Cub base runners, they were able to turn a big double play. Usually, it was Lindor and Guillerme. They're like a freaking fine wine as a double play combination. But Met pitching were able to get a lot of big double plays in this series. But I thought the opener was huge. Because right out of the gate, this offense clicked. They picked up right where they left off. Brandon Nimmo got hot. Pete Alonso hits a bomb. Patrick Mazika's contributing a two-run double. So I thought the first game of this series was very, very important to come out, kick some ass, get a victory right out of the gate, and make sure that right after that series went against Atlanta, they didn't go backwards. Because that could have happened, especially with the Braves taking on this minor league team known as the Nationals, and they're about to get more minor. Yes, we will discuss Juan Soto a little bit later on. 
There's a few things we'll hit on besides this series victory. The plan for Jacob deGrom, why I have a war with war, and Juan Soto. All of that will be covered throughout this Rico. But game one of this series, Carrasco's great, the offense clicks, boom, 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 we get a victory. Now, I felt sick during this game. I scored it, but here's what I did, Pete, because I always need to be honest. In the seventh inning, after this game is completely blown open, I think at that point it's it's eight nothing, uh, six nothing, because it's before Pete hit the two run home run. I was so freaking sick, I shut the book. Okay, I shut it. I said, I will do this at a later date because I feel so awful right now. I was cold, then I was hot, then I was cold again. It was freaking brutal. I never sneezed or coughed. I just I had temperature changes. Have you had the the COVID yet, Hoff? No, but everyone in my house has but me. So I'm the one who's escaped. Uh, so I have no idea what it feels like. Listen to everything I say, because at some point you're going to probably have it, and you're going to deal with everything I just said. Look, I'm laughing about it now, because at the end of the day, I'm fine, and my family's fine, and everybody's happy, so whatever. But Thursday night, I saw Pete hit the two-run home run in the eighth inning, and this was my reaction. All right, I will put that in the book uh, at another time. So I watched the last few innings. I did watch Trevor Williams get one of those mushnick saves, as I like to call it. Because Phil Mushnick is always reliable to bitch about a three-inning save and a blowout. And he's not wrong, by the way. It's actually one of those spots where Mushnick's right. So I'm giving him credit here. It's a Mushnick save, as uh, I like to refer to it. So I saw the whole game, but man, I shut my book. I was so freaking sick. And that's why on Friday, I may have been the one person who was ecstatic about this rainout. And here's the other thing that was good about the rainout. Because the Mets have had a lot of rainouts over the last few years. They've played a lot of doubleheaders. They've been mostly successful in these doubleheaders. But the negative of a doubleheader is not the result of that day. It's the fact that it screws you up five days later. That's the biggest issue with the doubleheader. Because the All-Star break's coming up, the Mets didn't have to deal with that. Because you knew, okay, no game Monday, no game Tuesday, no game Wednesday, no game Thursday. And oh yeah, Jacob deGrom's coming back. But forget Jake. The fact that they had all those days off... The doubleheader was never going to negatively impact them in terms of what's next. Obviously, day of, sure, you got to deal with it. And as we saw, Buck Showalter dealt with it because he made a decision. And that decision was, I'm going to go balls to the wall in game one. But in game two, let's just see what happens. Because I've already used all my key relievers and I'm not using them twice in one day, which I don't disagree with. As much as... 20 years ago, maybe you ask Edwin Diaz to pitch twice in one day or you ask a reliever to pitch twice in one day. And look, the Cubs did it with Michael Givens. You're going to be smart. You're going to be smart, especially with a bullpen that's been taxed a lot, a bullpen where you want to be careful with Adam Adovino, who's been great, where you want to be careful with Edwin Diaz. So that, of course, was the negative when you play a doubleheader. But I was thrilled that we weren't going to have to worry about, hey, how does this affect this team five days later? As far as game one of this doubleheader is concerned, before we say anything about this game, Ramon DeJesus needs to lose his job. That was, you know what, that's too harsh. I apologize. Ramon DeJesus deserves like a minor, hey, go remember what it's like to be an umpire, okay? Go study the strike zone, and then we'll bring you back and give you a second chance. Because the umpiring in game number one of this doubleheader, game number two of this series was atrocious. When Brandon Nimmo thinks you're a moron, when Brandon Nimmo is saying, what are you doing? You got trouble. And it wasn't just Brandon Nimmo. It was everybody. 
And look, I think we're spoiled nowadays because I got to give umpires credit. This is something most people won't admit. I'm going to admit it. The umpiring today is better than it's ever been. I really mean that. And the reason why we think it's worse is because we're smarter now. We have a box in front of our own freaking eyes. Like, I've been in isolation, Pete. You know I've done a lot of weird crap for the last three days, and one of which is I've watched a lot of old baseball, like I did during the pandemic. And you know what I see when I watch old baseball? I know what you don't see. I know you don't see boxes. <laughs> you don't see boxes, and you see crappier umpiring. It's absolutely true. I said this during the pandemic to Beningo. I'll say it to everybody now. The umpiring is better than it's ever been, but... You're right, Pete. We have a box in front of us now. So we, as umpires at home, are also going to be exposed in a more obvious way to a missed call. It's just the way it is. We're going to see it in a more obvious way. So that adds to our frustration. And I admit that. Like, I'm saying that before I continue to rip a Ramon de Jesus, that I know if this was 32 years ago, we would still notice bad umpiring, but it is a little bit different. With that said... I mean, this was, this was abysmal. And this isn't me bitching about the Mets. The Mets got screwed as much as the Cubs got screwed. I'm not even telling you the Mets got screwed more. Everybody got screwed. We as fans got screwed. I mean, it was it was atrocious from beginning to end. And Gary Cohn mentioned it on the broadcast, but I, I follow that umpire scorecard Twitter account. And... I noticed that most umpires are in the mid 90% 90 percentile in terms of correct calls, which, I mean, think about that. That's pretty good. If you got a 95 on a test in high school, Pete, you're having a freaking celebration. If I got in the mid-80s, I'd have a celebration. Dude, 75, I'd have to throw a party. What are you talking about? Pop the champagne. Exactly. Ramon de Jesus' horrific day, which we all admit was horrific and the numbers backed up was horrific, was in the high 80s. Which just shows you <laughs> that these umpires, even a guy like the Jesus on a game like that, they're right a hell of a lot more than they're wrong. With that said, with that said, he was very, very, very bad. And the Met offense, and this turned out to be a theme for both games of this doubleheader, and then obviously the finale of this series on Sunday, they just could not get a big hit. Very reminiscent of last year, very reminiscent of 2020. They were one for nine with runners in scoring position. It was a very, very frustrating game to watch. Pete Alonso had that big RBI double in the fourth inning. Outside of that, they couldn't buy a big hit. In that same inning after Alonso's double, they got a runner on second, nobody out. First of all, McNeil can't advance him. Then Escobar striking out. Then Dom Smith, who, I mean, just stinks. I feel bad that he got hurt, but he's, he's terrible. Grounds out the shortstop. And it was the story of the day. Like, they could not get a freaking big hit. And look who we're talking about. We're talking about Marcus Stroman and Brandon Hughes, who they made look like Sandy Koufax and Rowan Wick and Scott Efros and basically a bunch of pitchers most of us have not heard of. It was very, very frustrating to watch. Especially then, extra innings, 10th inning, first and second, nobody out. Now is the time for Tomas Nitto to lay down a freaking bunt and he can't get it down. And Brandon Nimmo strikes out. And Guillerme can't come through. And the Mets do nothing in that 10th inning. With that said, how about the freaking defense? I mean, it, when you look at how they won this game, they won this game because of something that none of us could have ever predicted. And that is J.D. Davis having to play first base late in the game 
because, well, this is what happens when you've decided that Dom Smith is going to be your first baseman and you pinch run him because he gets hurt. Not that they really had a choice. I would have pinch run him anyway with a guy like Starling Marte. But you do put yourself in a tough spot. When Dom comes out of the game, J.D. Davis comes in, and you've got two options. J.D. Davis plays first base, or you move Pete Alonso to first base, and you lose the DH, which I am dead set against. If they're going to give you this stupid rule, you got to hold on to it. And we've seen Buck a couple of times, sometimes kind of in a non-offensive way, sometimes in an offensive way, lose the DH in a big spot. So he's kind of forced to have to play J.D. Davis at first base, a position that he's barely played, a position that, look, I don't think he's ever looked bad at first base. He's barely played it. But when he's played first base, you know he's not a first baseman. Like, I don't think he's been atrocious at first base in the limited innings he's played, but no one's exactly trusting him. In fact, J.D. Davis doesn't remind you of this podcast namesake in any way. The great Rico Bronia. With that said... Poor J.D. Davis. He's stuck at first base. He's stuck there. What's he going to do? And by the way, I was thinking about it. After J.D. Davis pinch runs for Dom Smith and the Mets don't score in the 10th inning, if they decided, hear with me, because I was thinking about it, because I do think Pete Alonso is a better defensive first baseman than J.D. Davis, and I do think about defense late in the game. But this just shows you how miraculous the play was. I was thinking, all right, as much as I don't love losing the D.H., If you move Alonzo to first base, the DH spot would be in the seven hole. You've got the three hitter leading off in the 11th inning. You're putting yourself in a spot where, think about it. Let's say there's two outs and there's bases loaded. So Lindor, Alonzo get on, McNeil, Escobar out. Think about this. You lead to bases loaded, two outs, tie game, the pitcher spot up but you do have Starling Marte available off the bench. So I was thinking, am I willing to put myself in a spot where I know the game's not going 15 innings because of these new extra inning rules. I may only need to pinch hit for that pitcher one time. I've got Starling Marte. If it leads to bases loaded two out, tie game, or another situation, I could always go to Marte. I was thinking about it as much as I hate losing the DH because to me, do I trust J.D. Davis at first base in a big spot? (laughs) And we can all laugh about it now because J.D. Davis made the freaking defensive play of his life. A defensive play he'll probably never have to make again because he's likely not to have to play first base very much. Between Pete Alonso and Dom Smith, it's not like you're often going to have to have J.D. Davis at first base. But what a freaking play. I mean, that was... Unbelievable. Eduardo Escobar makes a great play by, first of all, getting to that ball, getting up, making somewhat of a decent throw. And by decent throw, I mean a throw that a player at first base can make a play on as opposed to it being 10 feet over his head or 10 feet wide. That's what I mean by a decent throw. And J.D. Davis with an incredible scoop, an incredible pick. I mean, freaking fantastic. It really was. So... I think that's one of those baseball moments where you say to yourself, that's freaking baseball. A guy has to play first base. A guy doesn't play first base. And a guy makes like a stupid defensive play. Really was incredible. Really, really was incredible. So good job by our man, J.D. Davis. Congratulations. Now we hope to never have to see you play first base ever again.
Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right. <laughs> By the way, how freaking good is Edwin Diaz? I mean, you kind of look at this guy right now and say, is this too good to be true or is this really the guy that we envisioned upon this trade? Like, is this really what this guy can remain at? I'm trying to just enjoy the ride and not be some skeptical douche and say, ah, don't worry, Edwin Diaz is going to screw us one day. I don't want to say it, even though I know deep down we all kind of fear it. But this guy has been, I think we could say it now, Hoff, he's the best closer in baseball. Oh, no question. And and just to piggyback off of, I I will say it, he's phenomenal. It's twofold. First of all, we saw how bad he was when he first came to the Mets. Was he really, he had some bad moments, but when he first came to this team, he wasn't terrible he just had a bit he had some really bad rough patches which made him really bad and you couldn't justify the trade of giving up a Kelnick and bringing in a Roberts Cano contract and with the Will Ponds being who they are being so you know cash you know was not cash rich like Steve Cohen it made the trade look worse and made Edwin Diaz have all the pressure two things now he's freaking awesome and on top of that he's free agent so now there's like next year's free he's a free agency year. You know, this is he's he could possibly walk at the end of this. So now it's like highlighted the fact that he's this good is it because it's a it's it's a free agent year for him, a walk year. I you know, I I know that Beningo is always a big proponent of that and I I know that a lot of guys will have big years and contract years. I don't necessarily know if that's it more than maybe Edwin Diaz is a 100% comfortable now pitching in New York City and B just at the pinnacle of his game. I mean, he throws 98 miles an hour. He's got one of the nastiest sliders in baseball. And here's the thing. And I know this is unquantifiable. Okay. And I may have to eat this at some point in October. Armando Benitez, who I think is the guy that puts the fear of God in all of us, because Armando Benitez was an elite-level closer. Armando Benitez, I could argue, is the greatest regular season closer, pound for pound, in Met history. I can make that argument over anyone you want to come up with. Tug McGraw, John Franco, Jesse Orozco, Billy Wagner. In the regular season, Armando Benitez was amazing. Okay, now hear me out. But in big moments in the regular season... Armando Benitez would show his true colors. And so it was almost a sign of things to come. And obviously we know about October. I don't have to sit here and repeat all of them, whether it's game one against the Yankees, game six against the Braves. I know it was the second inning of work, but the Mets are three outs away from forcing a game seven in the 99 NLCS. And Armando Benitez gives up a game time hit to Ozzie freaking Gian. Like, I'm not going to forget that. The home run to JT Snow against the Giants in 2000. Like, he was the ultimate choke artist 
when it came to closers, all right? But he used to give us signs of it during the regular season. This year, I'm not talking about the past, this season, Edwin Diaz, to his credit, has given us zero signs that the moment's going to melt him down. And if you remember back to the no-hitter, I'm not saying the no-hitter was the end-all be-all for me or the end-all be-all for you, but for that team, for Edwin Diaz, there was pressure when he took them out in the ninth inning to not give up a hit. And so it was kind of like a weird test drive about what the playoffs are going to be like. And I think in the big moments during this regular season, where the Mets are in a pennant race, let's face it, they're in a do-or-die race with the Atlanta Braves. They're, I don't think, ever going to run away with it. I mean, look, they're on pace to win 100 games. They haven't run away with it. This is not 2006. But in every big moment in the regular season that Edwin Diaz has had, he has come up big, which leads me to believe that while he may implode and has imploded in regular spots, it's not equated to the pressure. Armando Benitez blew it in big moments. It was simple. Big moment, he sucks. I don't get that impression with Edwin Diaz. And look, I may have to own that if he's blowing game five of the divisional series. I'm just saying that as we watch him dominate right now, I'm not seeing, and this is maybe just wishful thinking, I'm not seeing that the big moments are necessarily getting to him. Okay. How how much of that, and I, I hate to do this because I feel like this is the easiest like follow-up question is, how much does Buck Showalter have to do with that? Because you look at Luis, Luis Rojas, you look at uh, Mickey Calloway, the fact that they had no idea how to use their bullpen, use a guy like Edwin Diaz, you know, he, he'd work three days in a row, They he'd blow get blown up in one day, and then he'd be back on the mound again the next day, and it'd be like the same situation. It's like, at least Buck, I think, understands that, how to use Edwin Diaz and make him the best. I don't know. Honestly, because here's what I would ask you about that. And if this is not a knock on Buck, it's more just trying to answer that honestly. What has he really done differently with Edwin Diaz? Edwin Diaz has been great this year. Like, he uses him in closing situations. Sometimes he'll bring him in in the eighth inning like we saw in Los Angeles. Like, I think it's more about Edwin Diaz. And maybe it's just him growing up. Maybe it's the amount of experience he has in New York. Maybe it's just him being at his elitist level, at his craft. He's at he's at the top of his game right now. Maybe it's just his confidence. I mean, Edwin Diaz has a swagger to him now. Um, so look, I'd love to give Buck credit for a lot of things. But look, here's the thing about Buck, and I'm not ripping him for this. It's an observation. In game two of this doubleheader, another game in which the Mets can't buy a freaking hick, hit, they're fortunate as all hell that they took the lead in the 10th inning. Pete Alonso on an 0-2 pitch gets hit by a pitch. All right. Then there's the error by uh, Michael Gibbons. All right. Commits the error. He then decides, okay, I got a one run lead in the 10th inning. I got the top of the order coming up. It's the second game of a doubleheader. Yoan Lopez, sink or swim. That's, that's what he decided. Yoan Lopez, sink or swim. And all of us, every single one of us, as he's facing Frankie Schwindel with the bases loaded and one out, is assuming he's going to sink. And we're all going to say, all right, you know what, this sucks, but I get it. Game two of a doubleheader, just go win Sunday. And it works. And I think our view on Buck is, ah, see, he's a freaking genius. No, he basically said, I'm not going to blow my bullpen out in the second game of a doubleheader. And somehow, Yoan Lopez had the balls of stone 
and he got a huge double play, and Eduardo Escobar didn't F it up, and Eduardo Escobar didn't kick the ball around. So I love Buck. I think he does a lot of things we can't measure as far as confidence with maybe these guys in the room. So to your point about Diaz, who knows? He may have an impact on that that we don't see. But a lot of what happens sometimes is just flat-out luck. The Mets were lucky as hell to win the second game of that doubleheader. I'll, listen, luck is good. I'll take luck any day as long as we're winning. Listen, two games be, we're two, we are two games short of 60 wins at the All-Star break. It's freaking amazing. Did you see the numbers, by the way? The, the, uh, I don't know if I have the t- tweet up. Here it is. All right, I thought I had it. The Como had it. Now I lost it. This is the second best record the Mets have had in a regular season going into All-Star break, percent, win percentage-wise. It's impressive. So I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you said that. Now, your thesis is correct, but I am getting so pissed off. And not at you. Don't worry. I'm getting so why. pissed off. Wait, what am I about to say? You you could read my mind. Go ahead. What am I going to say? Is it because they played more games already? Is that something like that? Yeah. <laughs> I know. No, no. And that's okay, Pete. Like, because he, he, I'm going to prove that your thesis is fine. So I am so sick of hearing about this record at the All-Star break when they've played a different amount of games than they have in the past. So let's play a different game, okay? It's called the Mets records through 93 games. All right, because the Mets have played 93 games, and they are 58 and 35. Okay, that's their record. Have I confirmed that? Yes. Yeah. 58 and 35 through 93 games. So, Pete, I've had a lot of time on my hands. <laughs> I decided to take a look at the Mets' best records in their history through 93 games. Not at the All-Star break through 93 games. And guess what? It all fact-checks correctly. It's the second-best record in the franchise's history. (laughs) Here's what I find really interesting. I'm going to show you the other seasons. And it's kind of an exercise in why this season feels so different in many, many ways. So obviously, the all-time record is 1986. The team won 108 games that year. Through 93 games, they had a record of 63-30. and So imagine that. (laughs) The Mets are five games behind the pace of the 1986 Mets, a team that won 108 games, and they were up by 14 and a half games in the division. So obviously it was a complete runaway. This is the second best start. Right now they're up by two and a half games, which is incredible because 2006, in which they were 56 and 37, so only two games off the pace, they were 11 and a half games up. The race was over. So sometimes how we feel is determined by how close our race is. I mean, the Mets could win 100 games and not win this division. I think that's very much on the table. I've said that before. Obviously, if they beat the Atlanta Braves and they face them, which they did an admirable job at Atlanta of winning two out of three, then they'll win the division. But they're in a race. Now, one thing I did notice, and I was surprised by this because I don't remember 1988. I was obviously too young. They were also 56 and 37 in 1988. But they were only a game and a half up on the Pittsburgh Pirates. So they actually had a smaller lead in 88 than they have now. But that 88 team had a monster September. They won 100 games, and they ran away with it. 1984, a year in which they missed the playoffs, that was like their renaissance year, where they their first breakout season in the Darryl, Doc, Keith Hernandez era, they would get Gary Carter a year later. 
They also were 56 and 37. They were two and a half games up, but they had a very mediocre August, very mediocre September. And even though they won 90 games, they obviously ended up not winning the division. 1990, 1990, they were 55 and 38. So a few games off this pace, and they were a half game out of first place. And then you got the 69 Mets, 53 and 40. They were six games back. Remember, they ran away with it in August and September. They were 44 and 14 in their last 58 games. And then you got the 85 Mets at 53 and 40, and the 1999 Mets at 53 and 40. So right now, by two games, this is the second greatest start in the history of this franchise. And look, as good as this team is, because that 86 team was so amazing, they won 108 games. I think the pace that we're trying to set is the second best pace in the history of the franchise. And really, here's the number I'm looking at. 100 wins. Because if the Mets can win 100 games for only the fourth time in their history, 69, 86, 88, logic would tell me that they sh- that they may win the division. <laughs> <laughs> that they have a good chance to win the division, especially because they have so many games against the Atlanta Braves. And I don't know, if they win 100 games and don't win the division, I can at least sleep at night that we won 100 freaking games and somehow we didn't win the division. Like, I can't blame the Mets for that. You almost have to just blame the freaking Washington Nationals for being so inept that they can't put up any kind of fight against the Braves that they did win the game on Sunday. But right now, through 93 games... This is the second best start in the history of the franchise. And I think as we hit to this All-Star break, we as Mets fans need to just remember that. As much of a race as this is, as close as this is, as stressful as things may be, as much as they need to add a reliever or they need to add a DH, this is the second best start in the history of this franchise. Breathe it in. Breathe it in. Are you breathing, Pete? Breathe it in. I'm breathing a lot. I'm breathing a ton right now, and I, it, it's a good—it's a good feeling. It's a fresh feeling. It's—I'm not used to this, you know. I know it's freaking crazy. Now, with that said, if anything became obvious in this series against Chicago, is the need for David Robertson to just be captured away from Chicago and taken back to New York. Robertson did a freaking hell of a job. The two innings in the doubleheader. And then on Sunday to come back on no rest after throwing 25 pitches and get the huge double play and shut the Mets down, David Robertson has had a hell of an audition to become a member of the New York Mets. It's like Luis Castillo did to the Yankees a few days ago. David Robertson has shown us his balls. Come back to New York. We'll take you. They obviously need to add another reliever. No one here trusts Drew Smith. Not that Drew had the worst performance in the world in giving up those two runs, a couple of ground balls. Really, the the killer was the Nico Horner base hit because the comebacker was cheap. The two leadoff hits against him were, you know, one was an infield hit. It's not like he was smoked. The problem was Nico Horner, that slider that just hung up there and Horner ripped up the middle for what turned out to be the game-winning hit. Seth Lugo sucks. Adam Adovino's great, but none of us know how long it's going to last. This team needs to add a reliever. David Robertson just put an audition on the board. He's one of many guys they may target. And we'll do a podcast in a couple of days during the All-Star break to kind of really focus in on names, on contracts, on stats of the guys they need to target. Plus, we'll take a look at the history of the Mets at the trade deadline. So we'll have some fun with that. But David Robertson in this series did a great job of auditioning. The other thing was, let's not forget, they couldn't freaking hit in the last three games of this series. They couldn't hit. 
All right, they were lucky they won the two games in this doubleheader, and obviously the finale of this series, the trend continued. They couldn't buy a freaking hit, and then when they finally get a big hit from Eduardo Escobar, Lindor's thrown out by a mile. They obviously need to add a DH. J.D. Davis and Dom Smith have done nothing, nothing to prove otherwise. So for the next two weeks, that's what we're going to be focused on as Met fans, the absolute need, and there are so many freaking names. I'm telling you, I've made a master list, Pete, of names of DHs and relievers that this team has to target. And you're going to want to download that podcast. I guess we'll record it Wednesday, Pete. Does that sound like a good day to do it? Wednesday, something like that? Sounds like a great day. I'll be ready. I'm pumped. Let it go. We've got nothing else to do. Bro, nothing to do. And I'm telling you right now, I want everybody to bring a notepad when they listen to that podcast. We are going to go through so many freaking names, your head's going to explode. But that's the point. There are a lot of targets because... And this is not me complimenting the DH. I just want to make this clear. I'm making an observation. Because their need is for a DH, not a shortstop, not a third baseman, not a left fielder, a DH, any freaking human being who's a bat makes sense for the New York Mets. See what I'm saying? The position doesn't matter. It's absolutely true. And I don't want to hear, well, they could really use a first baseman. right? No, no, no. They could use a goddamn bat. I don't give a crap what position the guy plays. So literally, you go through, and I've done this, every team that may trade at the deadline, look for any of their bats. Any of their freaking bats. I don't care what position they play. Why the hell does it matter? Look, it's nice to play a position so that you have versatility. I get that over a guy like Nelson Cruz. I understand that. But they need a bat. It's obvious. Sandy Alderson knows it's obvious. Hoff knows it's obvious. I know it's obvious. Uh, question, because I want to have a list of my own too. Your uh, is it? How realistic are these moves? You said these are the most. These are the top guys. You know, maybe have some control. Look at you with the muscles over there. <laughs> I see you flexing. What are you flexing about? I'm just getting twitchy. I've been stuck in the same room for four <laughs> days doing all sorts of weird stuff. You're lucky we're not going live with these videos yet, because otherwise that'd be the first thing being posted. As as Evans flexing his nice paley white skin. But here's the deal. I need to know because I want to bring my list too. I want a list of guys that I can bring to the table. Are you going more realistic or just like – I like because there's guys that one-year contracts, guys that have a couple years of arbitration available that you might have to give up a bunch of prospects for to bring in and maybe make them a long-term piece. What are you What, what are you focusing in on? No, I'm focusing in on somewhat realistic because they're obviously going to be – I'll give you a specific example. There are going to be guys like Nelson Cruz who you know the Nationals are trading, right? There's just no ifs, ands, and buts about it. But then there are guys where you're like, are the Rockies going to trade C.J. Crone? I could see them trading C.J. Crone, but I'm not sure if they are. So I think there are two tiers. There are the ones that are absolute locks to be traded, and then there are the ones that, yeah, make sense to be traded. But no, I'm not going to bring up guys who are clearly not going to be traded. I mean, the Red Sox are not going to sell, so I think our dreams of J.D. Martinez have completely gone away. The Braves are not selling a bat to us, so I'm really looking at the more realistic targets, the teams that are out of it. And then, yeah, there's going to be levels of realisticness, if you will. There are going to be the guys you have to trade, and then the guys that you could trade in the right deal. So, we'll touch on that, but... They need a bat. And look, it was refreshing that Sandy Alderson said that to John Heyman and Joel Sherman the other day because even though it's obvious and you could say, oh, it's not news, we all know it, it's nice to hear the Mets admit that it's obvious. By the way, keep an eye on one other thing. Tomas Nitto is banged up. He didn't play in the finale of this series. 
Buck Showalter said it's a minor injury. If Tomas Nitto had to miss time and go on the injured list, the New York Mets would literally have to add a catcher to their 40-man roster if they want to continue avoiding calling up Francisco Alvarez. And I know it's not ideal for Francisco Alvarez to be catching this pitching staff on an everyday basis. I think most of us are more obsessed with his bat than the idea of him catching all the time. But if Tomas Nitto missed time, and you're already without James McCann, like, what are you going to do? I mean, what, are you going to call up uh, Brent Maine from retirement? Like, you're literally going to have to eventually say, all right, we're going to give this kid a chance to catch. Uh, one other thing from the doubleheader. This is a minor thing, but it really pissed me off. So I just want to throw this at Met fans if you remember this. So it was, hold on a second. Let me find it in my scorecard because I wrote this down. This one just kind of bothered me. All right. It's game two of the doubleheader. The New York Mets have runners on second and third and two outs in the top of the second inning in a 0-0 game. Jeff McNeil takes a pitch inside and just quickly runs to first base and says, it hit me. And it did. It barely brushed his shirt. It loads the bases up for Tomas Nitto. And I'm thinking to myself, Jeff, Jeff, there's a YouTube clip I'd love you to look up. Albert Bell was once hit by a pitch, turned around, and refused to go to first base. He said, no, I'm not going to first base. I'm Albert F. and Bell, and I want to hit. Jeff McNeil, to me, is still pound for pound the guy you trust the most in a big spot with guys on base. With second and third and two outs, and Tomas Nitto on deck, Jeff, act like it didn't hit you so you could come through with a hit. This freaking annoyed me to no end. And then, of course, Nitto flies out the left field. As this was happening, and I was like formulating a tweet to basically say, Jeff, can you pretend it didn't hit you? Because the Cubs are not going to challenge that it hit you to send you to first base. In fact, David Ross was thinking about it challenging it the other way. And I was like, challenge it. Please challenge it. I want Jeff McNeil up in a big spot, not Tomas Nitto. But whatever. All right, whatever. That, that was just a small, small thing that annoyed me. Uh, as far as the finale of this series, look, they couldn't hit again. Drew Smith is untrustworthy, and the Mets lose a game that, you know, kind of like game one and game two of the doubleheader, you never felt great about. The offense never clicked. But the bottom line is this. They won three out of four in this series. They're in first place. It helped out that the Braves lost on Sunday as well, so the Mets didn't lose any ground. And now we can take a nice respite for five days Uh take a deep breath, and say, hey, this is the second greatest start in the history of this franchise. couple of other things. Number one, let me get to Juan Soto. I also want to get into the stat war that I feel is the most, uh, the most, um, let me choose my words carefully because I'm not anti-analytics, I'm anti-war. Why you as Met fans, I don't care how much analytics you are, I will explain to you why war is so flawed and you won't argue with me. You're going to say, you're right, Evan, I can't argue with that. We'll get to that in a minute. As far as the Soto stuff is concerned, um, the Nationals didn't make him this amazing offer. I know on the surface the headline is going to be turned down $400 million. They offered him less money per year than a handful of players in Major League Baseball. He's 23 years old. He knows at free agency at 25, 26, he can get a hell of a lot more than that. So I'm not stunned by Soto turning this down. And I'm not acting like, oh my God, how could he do that? I didn't think the offer was that amazing. Number two, I don't believe they're going to trade him before the deadline. I think they're going to start to listen to offers now. I do think they're going to trade Juan Soto. I think this is an offseason kind of trade. 
So for all of us getting nuts about, oh my God, Juan Soto is going to be traded at the deadline, uh, you have me on record here. I'd be very, very surprised if he's moved at the trade deadline. Number three, I, and I, w- I got pushback from somebody, um, how do I phrase this? I got pushback from somebody who's very well connected in the Met organization that the Nationals would trade inside the division, mainly because ownership is selling and they don't give a rat's ass. And while I respect that theory, I don't necessarily agree with that theory. I don't believe the Washington Nationals will trade Juan Soto inside the division. We saw how they were about Max Scherzer. Max Scherzer was a rental. This is a guy who's going to be on the next team potentially for the next 10 years. And I I don't buy the ownership theory. I understand it. I respect it. I don't think their attitude is, who the hell cares? We'll trade him to the Braves. We'll trade him to the Mets. I don't see it. So... Look, we can have a Soto discussion. We can break down who we're willing to give up. I honestly think it's very, very unrealistic. I really do. I'm not losing sleep over this. I do think if he gets to free agency, it's realistic. And that's a different discussion. If Juan Soto, who's represented by Scott Boris, says, I don't care who trades for me. I want to wait till free agency. Then we have something to be excited about in two years. And we have a great debate. Do you wait on Juan Soto? Do you sign Aaron Judge? Do you keep your own guys? Do you... You know, all this kind of fun stuff that we touched on a few weeks ago. But if it comes down to can they trade for him, I'm telling you right now, I would be absolutely stupefied and stunned if the New York Mets acquired Juan Soto in a trade. We could talk about it. Am I willing to give up Francisco Alvarez? Look, I'll make this quick and simple. I think Juan Soto is a generational player. I think he's one of the greatest left-hand hitters we've seen since Barry Bonds. I think he's that good. I know he's having an offseason. He's 20 effing three years old. So there is no prospect, not a one, that would keep me from trading him. For him. Not one. Now, I have a question for you, though. Yes. Uh, if you're trading for him, it, whether it's before the deadline or in the offseason... There has to be a caveat of there needs to be an extension because you're not going to give up the future for two years, correct? Well, you're. I think because of us. Look, we're having this as discussion as Met fans, not as a Mariner fan or a Padre fan. I think the understanding is you're going to pay him. Even if you don't make that deal in the moment, you're going to take care of him. You're not going to be outbid. So am I willing to trade for him without an extension? I am. As long as Steve Cohen has the willingness of giving him the $500 million that he may get. I don't think the extension is an absolute must. Because again, I got a rich-ass owner. We have a rich-ass owner. So I I wouldn't feel the same pressure that maybe a different team would feel to have to get it done ahead of time. But look, this is an all-timer. I, that's how good I think Juan Soto is as a talent. So I don't think you ever let any kind of prospect stand in your way. And also, Pete, think about what you said. Two years. It's not one year. It's not six weeks. Two years. You're getting two years of one of the best players in all of baseball. So it's not like it's a... I can't call trading for a guy for two years a rental. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's not a rental. That's a... I got a guy for two years. No, I understand that. But if you're literally... Whoever... If if he gets traded either before the deadline or in the offseason, you got to think it's going to be a haul of a century. Like, this is not going to... Oh, be, yeah. This is going to be like a Herschel Walker type of trade. You know, it's going to be game-changing for the Nationals. You know what I was also thinking, by the way, and maybe this is my NBA brain kind of too much into this, I think it has to be a three-way trade where 
one team trades all their prospects and takes a current star, trades that guy to another team for more prospects, that's funneled to the Washington Nationals. You see what I'm saying? It's like the idea the Nets have on how they trade Kevin Durant, where it's, hey, one team doesn't have enough to trade for him. So it's going to be, you trade, like, I'll give you a Met example. Not saying I would do this. I'm just giving you an example. The Mets trade uh, Vientos, Alvarez, Matthew Allen, Mauricio. That's not enough. Then they've got to trade Pete Alonso to the Cincinnati Reds for their top three prospects, and their top three prospects go to Washington. Again, oh, Juan Soto. Jesus. I'm not saying that I would do that because now you're talking about major leaguers. You're not talking about just lottery tickets. But I do think that that's what the Nationals are going to try to do, and because they have something that's never been traded before. I mean, think about it. Like, what guy at this age could this good could we think of that was traded? Oh. So it's mind-boggling. No, I, I know, and that's why we're talking about too. It's like you're talking about someone who's 23 years old who's had already has a World Series under his belt. He's been in the top, the highest pressure situation of all time, succeeded, and we're talking about him potentially being traded for prospects that may be older than him. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> Now, the whole, the whole thing is insane. But I do think, and, and I, if I'm proven wrong, I'll admit this here. I, I would be absolutely stunned, A, if he's traded inside the division. But more so, I don't think he's getting traded anytime soon. Like, I think that's going to be something that happens during the offseason. Now, real quick, do you think Pete Alonso's having a good year? Oh, he's having a great year, yeah. Oh, he's having a great year. He's having a great year, right? Uh, uh, no doubt, yeah, of course. Okay. Everybody listening right now to Rico Bronia, Pete Alonso's having a good year? He's having a great year? He's having a fine year? Do you know where Pete Alonso's yeah. ranked in war in twenty twenty two? Like where he's ranked in war? Go ahead. Oh, I I think he's like thirty something, right? Oh, you think he's thirty something? That's cool. Is that where you think he is? I I think that's where he was at once one point in time. Where where is he? Tell me. I have him ranked as uh, like a hundred and third. I'm not even kidding you. And like. Here's the thing that just boggles my mind, all right? And, and I'm, this is not a tirade against analytics because I've gotten into a lot of certain stats that I probably wouldn't have three, four years ago. But the one stat I can't wrap my head around is something that none of us can measure. It's just kind of written down by baseball reference and fan graphs, and then people repeat it like it's the gospel. I watch Pete Alonso every single day. I think we all do. And while I'm not telling you he's Paul Goldschmidt defensively, and nobody's going to tell you he's the greatest base runner in the world, he's not a bad base runner. And I don't think he's a bad defensive first baseman. Yet the advanced metrics are trying to tell us that Willie Adamas and Merrill Kelly and Scott Barlow, who's a relief pitcher, and Trey Mancini and Jose Trevino all have a better war. And that's, that's something I can't get my head around. Like, I, I can't get my head around how disrespected Pete Alonso is as a baseball player. Now, I'm not arguing he's the MVP of the league. I'm not trying to tell you he's even top three MVP in this league, though I'm sure many people will, and I respect it. But he gets, every time I look at the war stat, because I see it cited by Met fans to explain how good of a year Lindor's having. And that's fine. Lindor is having a good year. He's been very streaky, but he's had a fine year. I get it. Brandon Nimmo, look at his war. Okay, for everyone who wants to cite war for certain guys, are you telling me Pete Alonso's the Mets' seventh best player? Like, are we really buying that? 
Are we buying that half the rotation has a higher war than Pete Alonso? That Starling Marte, Brandon Nimmo, Francisco Lindor, that basically everybody who has a pulse has a better war than Pete Alonso? So that pisses me off, and I just wanted to get that off my chest. All right? I feel a lot better. As far as DeGrom is concerned, I pitch, uh, watched him pitch the other day. Feels so good watching Jake pitch. It looks like we have finally made it. Now, we're all going to sweat out every start he makes and hope everything goes well. I know he's going to have a, a side session or uh, a simulated game on Tuesday. At this point, it's the Yankee series. I mean, it, it just kind of makes sense that that's where he's going to debut. I doubt it's Sunday night against the Padres because why not give him an extra day after throwing a simulated game? I guess they could give him another rehab start. At this point, the reason why it's not even worth it anymore is if he's stretched out now to at least those 70 pitches or go five innings, let's go. You got David Peterson, who's been great. It's sad that David Peterson is going to lose a spot in the rotation, assuming that's what they do. I said this to you before, though. I think David Peterson can be a great weapon out of the bullpen, especially a left-handed reliever, considering they only have one. But you talk about a guy that doesn't deserve to lose his spot in the rotation. It's David Peterson. But as a guy to kind of piggyback Jake after his first start, I say why not? You know what? Throw him against the Yankees. I don't think there's any reason to be afraid. You know, the Yankees are a good baseball team. The Padres are a good baseball team. Throw him against a good baseball team. The fact that 44,000 people are going to be jam-packed in a city field should not make a difference. I'm not scared of it. I'm not pushing him towards it. It's not like George Steinbrenner having Doc Gooden make his Yankee debut in 2000 against the Mets like he needed to do it. It doesn't need to happen this way. But at this point, why the hell not? Now, we'll do a podcast on Wednesday. We'll get deep into the trade deadline targets. We'll also do a little uh, retrospective on the history of the Mets at the trade deadline. But... Met fans, here's what I want you to do over the next 48 hours. Remember, you are watching a team that through 93 games is off to their second best start in the history of the freaking franchise. Now, I need to take a nap because I've done more talking in the last 45 minutes than I have in the last three days. Craig and I will be together, probably not in the studio for me because I got COVID, but I will be doing a show with Craig Monday Two o'clock on the fan, and we'll have a Rico posted Wednesday late afternoon. For Pete Hoffman, who you can check out with Tiki and Tierney, I'm Evan Roberts. Thank you for listening to the COVID edition of Rico Bronya. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. 